Pitocin is the narcotic of obstetrics, where you can use narcotics appropriately when need be, but they have to be used very judiciously. When you're working in a medical setting and you have certain technology available to you, then sometimes it's hard not to let that medical technology overtake all of the other tools and skills and resources that we have that are underutilized in the hospital setting. That's exactly why Cynthia and I jokingly, but seriously say often that we're so amazed and impressed by the women who actually have physiologic birth in the hospital, because it is the hardest place to have a physiologic birth. I'm Cynthia Overgaard, owner of Hypnobirthing of Connecticut, childbirth advocate, and postpartum support specialist. And I'm Trisha Ludwig, certified nurse midwife and international board-certified lactation consultant. And this is the Down to Birth Podcast. Childbirth is something we're made to do, but how do we have our safest and most satisfying experience in today's medical culture? Let's dispel the myths and get down to birth. Hi, I'm Connie. Um, I am a board-certified labor and delivery nurse. I've been working for over eight years, um, working in four different hospitals. I also consult as a nurse expert witness for medical malpractice attorneys where obstetric nursing cases um, come into question. Um, I actually became a labor and delivery nurse precisely because I was mistreated at my own birth. So a lot of times people come to nursing because they were inspired um, by their nursing care. Unfortunately for me, I felt the opposite, that I was mistreated at my own births. Um, I actually also have a podcast, the Happy Birthway podcast. So I tell my stories there if anyone wants to hear that. Um, and that has been my passion uh, of my my line of work. And I love listening to the Down to Birth podcast because there's always something new to learn in every single episode. I love hearing perspectives of both you two um, and also of your guests. I love hearing the perspectives of people, women who are giving birth. Yes. So, honey, we're really excited to speak with you today because Pitocin in particular is a topic that we feel very passionate about. It is an extremely commonly used medication in birth. Um, and most women are not aware of the risks. It's really treated as sort of as a benign intervention or just a way to kind of kickstart or jumpstart your labor. Um, and this is an area that you have a lot of experience with as an expert witness. And so this will be wonderful for our community to hear the inside scoop on what you see. So here's the quick spiel that I give my patients before I start Pitocin in labor on any single patient. Um, Pitocin is an artificial form of the hormone that we make, oxytocin, and you guys have spoken about that on your podcast many times. Um, but the way Pitocin works is it creates the body you know, to make contractions. Every single person, every woman is going to respond in a different way to that Pitocin based on how sensitive their uterine receptors are. And so because of that, we have to start the Pitocin really slow because we don't know how much someone is going to respond to. Some people can be flooded with Pitocin. If their receptors are not there, they're not going to have those contractions. And then other people the one or two tiny little whiffs, million units of Pitocin, and um, they're going to respond very quickly. Now, also, we have to do it slow because 
everything, we're generating the contractions for our baby. And when we generate contractions, um, you know, as, as medical staff, then every contraction is a stressor on the baby in general. Labor is a stressor on a baby, but most of the time, uh, women have that extra, uh, you know, uh, reserve in their placenta in order for the baby to be able to handle it. But the pituitary contractions are a little bit different. Um, they're not the natural physiological contractions. And if there is a baby that is compromised already, even to begin with, before we start the labor, we have to be really careful to make sure that we're not causing that baby stress when we're giving that pitocin. And there's no way for a doctor or a nurse or any medical professional to know what each woman's individual physiology is going to tolerate with pitocin without trial and error, basically. So you know, we, it's just sort of like a crapshoot when you start Pitocin as to whether or not it will be sufficient for her or harmful to her or her baby. Right. And so that's why somebody needs to be on continuous monitoring. You know, we can't, if someone is having a Pitocin infusion, you can't have intermittent monitoring. You have to have the continuous monitoring, although there are many limitations to it. That's the best that we have if we are starting a medication like this. And we can discontinue the Pitocin if we see, um, if we see any signs of potential compromise, we can discontinuing. And that being said, compromise is a very subjective thing when it comes to electronic fetal monitoring and interpreting the strip. You know, most babies have dips here or there in labor. It's a normal thing. And the whole entire system of EFM is difficult to really pinpoint an exact time where this means the baby's compromised. So sometimes we can see signs of compromise and the baby's really actually not compromised. And sometimes we can let those signs go on for too long and the baby indeed has become compromised. And so most of the time when I review cases, I would say that most of the time the cases that I've reviewed were because a baby was, um, a mother was receiving a Pitocin infusion. E either it was started before the we were able to determine that the baby was actually, you know, great, A-okay. We call it a category one tracing where it's really, really good at predicting that category one tracing that a baby is not compromised, doing well. Either the Pitocin was started before we were actually able to see that tracing to make sure that the baby was okay before we were adding more stress, or we let it go on for too long and the baby was too compromised. Why would anyone start Pitocin without understanding how the baby was doing without having a tracing? Uh, they can have a tracing, but it may not be a category one tracing. So when we categorize tracings, the category one tracing is excellent at predicting that a baby is doing well. And the category three tracing is excellent at predicting that a baby is really not doing well. 80% of tracings are category two. 80%. And so sometimes Pitocin was started in someone with a category two tracing where we don't know for sure. Maybe the characteristics in the category two tracing didn't seem so bad, et cetera, et cetera. And sometimes you also have where um, multiple providers are misinterpreting a strip. Like there are a lot of nuances involved in that. And they continued the Pitocin infusion while misinterpreting this strip repeatedly. But I will tell you the majority of the time, what I've seen is, is that there was a lack of communication between the providers and the patient explaining what exactly was going on to the patient and why they needed the Pitocin infusion, et cetera. Are you talking about Pitocin during labor or are you yes. talking about, so let's just acknowledge that Pitocin is being overused during labor because 
just the conversation I'm afraid is normalizing it. It, it just, what do you, what is your opinion about how often it's being used in the first place? Um, You're definitely right. I think it also varies from hospital to hospital, provider to provider. I happen to be grateful to work in places where there's a little bit more mindfulness regarding starting Pitocin, even though the joke is, is when a patient comes in with a normal physiological labor spontaneously, no interventions, no epidural and gives birth. It's kind of, I, I like to turn to my colleagues and like say, wow, believe it or not, people can sometimes give birth without a Pitocin infusion. Now that's a joke, but um it's not as overused as I've heard from people in other giving birth in other hospitals. Like I've heard women tell me, well, after they gave me the epidural, I saw them hanging an infusion and I said, hey, what is that? Oh, it's Pitocin. It's standard to start together with the epidural. We don't, I don't come from a place that we do it that way. But, um, you know, what I've come to see is that if you're working in a setting where you don't have a Pitocin infusion, say at home or in a birth center, you have other tools at your disposal. And you're being resourceful with using those tools to help labor get going. Like there are the three P's of labor, power, which is the power of the contractions, which sometimes Pitocin is helpful for, but then there's also the passage and the passenger, right? And so the passage and the passenger, a lot of times the, you know, midwifery model of care concentrates on that, on proper positioning, on staying upright, on helping the baby's head rotate, the baby's the passenger. But when you're working in a medical setting and you have certain technology available to you, then sometimes it's hard not to let that medical technology overtake all of the other tools and skills and resources that we have that are underutilized in the hospital setting versus in, you know, home birth or in a birth center. That's exactly why Cynthia and I jokingly, but seriously say often that we're so amazed and impressed by the women who actually have physiologic birth in the hospital because it is the hardest place to have a physiologic birth. Everything about the hospital environment is kind of working against that. So uh, just from the bright lights to the strangers, to the noise, to the interruptions, to the immediate access to Pitocin, epidurals, other pain relieving measures to somebody constantly asking you if you're ready for that epidural yet, or can we just give you a whiff of Pitocin? It'll just kind of help you along. Will you look tired? All that stuff. Um, what is the percentage of women in your nursing world that get Pitocin in labor? Hey there, all you amazing, strong, and beautiful women, especially you new moms and moms-to-be. I'm Taylor, co-founder and CEO of Vitality. And I'm Taylor's sister, Chloe, co-founder and chief design officer. We started Vitality to encourage and empower everyone to live a vibrant life. We're all about supporting women, especially on the journey to motherhood. When I was pregnant, I really struggled to find comfy leggings that I could wear all day, every day. So we set out to make the best maternity pants out there. We took those pain points and designed pieces that were supportive and comfortable, including details like a high-rise fit, underbelly seam, raw cut hems, and to top it off, we have an embedded silicone panel that acts like a built-in suspension system for your low back, which is the first of its kind. 
So we designed this line in our Marshmallow Soft Cloud 2 fabric in not only a maternity pant, but a volley and biker short as well. Let me tell you, all of these pieces are a game changer. Just go to shopvitality.com. And cherry on top, you guys can use code down to birth at checkout to get 10% off your order. 10% off athleisure designed for pregnancy during pregnancy. Down to birth is sponsored by Postpartum Soothe. Recovering from a vaginal birth takes many women by surprise. Everyday activities like sitting, walking, and going to the bathroom can be uncomfortable. And Postpartum Soothe is just the remedy to support your healing and relieve discomfort. Postpartum Soothe is a 100% organic herbal blend that's applied to maternity pads in the days immediately following your birth, giving you all the benefits of a sitz bath 24-7. That's because herbs like comfrey leaf, uva ursi, and witch hazel are known for their antimicrobial and anti-inflammatory properties. Postpartum Soothe can be prepared anytime during the third trimester, and it makes a beautiful baby gift. It's a must for any woman seeking a faster, easier recovery from a vaginal birth. Visit postpartumsoothe.com. That's postpartumsoothe, S-O-O-T-H-E dot com, and use promo code down to birth. Did you know that 97% of women take a prenatal vitamin, yet 95% of us are still deficient in key nutrients for pregnancy and postpartum? After a long time searching for the optimal prenatal nutrition product, we bring you Needed a radically better prenatal vitamin. Needed's nutritional products offer nutrients that your body can utilize with doses at optimal versus bare minimum levels and are available in capsules and an easy-to-take vanilla powder, perfect for those moms with pill fatigue or nausea. Needed is a woman-founded company offering a superior nutritional product lineup backed by research, data, and insights from nearly 4,000 women's health experts. Needed offers premium supplements for every stage, from egg quality support for women trying to conceive to lactation support for breastfeeding. And you know, Cynthia and I, we love their botanical sleep and relaxation support packets before bedtime. So if you are looking for a radically different prenatal, head on over to thisisneeded.com and enter down to birth for 20% off your first order. I actually recently looked up a report it was just we were we were playing around trying to get some statistics and i think in the last month maybe i think it was over 50% of patients that had had um some form of pitocin either induction or augmentation where they're already in labor you can't quote me on it exactly but it was quite high and then we're also looking at is that also part of the C-section group? I don't know if it was the entirety of the births where some patients have a scheduled C-section. In that case, it would make the percentage higher among those who have had a vaginal delivery. Yeah, I would actually, I would say that 50% actually sounds a little bit low to me in a hospital setting. But in your hospital, you said it is lower, right? Yeah, so I don't know. It, it may be lower. It's just that I've worked in different places and I have colleagues and I have, you know, just Again, people who reach out to me, and I think it varies a by region, varies from hospital to hospital, what their culture, the philosophy about the use of something like Pitocin is, um, and policies in place. I know we a lot of times policies are used as an evil term, but sometimes they're also good because 
I will refer to the policy and say, I'm sorry, I cannot start Pitocin on a patient like this, or I'm sorry, I have to discontinue Pitocin um, on a patient that's having XYZ because this is what the policy says, it's not safe. So I can actually use that to protect me and the patient um, in order to say, no, I'm, I'm sorry, I have to discontinue the Pitocin. In general, policies at hospitals are put in place to protect the patient and somewhat to protect the institution and the provider. But the problem with policies is that it, when they are actually doing the job of protecting the patient, they're great. But when they are doing the job of interfering with the patient's individual needs, they get in the way. Well, the other thing yeah. to pay attention to is the fact that it was sort of what Hani was saying about how it changes regionally. Our hospitals in the United States have C-section rates varying between 7% and 70%, a full order of magnitude in this one in this country. So it just goes to show that if some hospitals are producing C-section rates of 70%, but others are 7, 8, 10%, that you know that isn't a function of the population of women who's going there. It's a function of the culture within that hospital and how they practice and how they pick up from each other, how to continue practicing, the rhetoric they pick up, the things they say to, to their patients. Yeah, sure. And and Cynthia, what you said about the immense divide between percentages of C-sections in different hospitals um, and how that can be related to policy. It has been linked to that as well with the oversight. Um, but, you know, with the ARRIVE trial and all the controversy that it's gotten and people asking me, my doctor said I should be induced at 39 weeks because it will lower my chance of a cesarean. I always say to them, first check your hospital's uh, C-section rates. And if they reach, if they are the same or lower than the C-section rates in the ARRIVE trial, which were much better C-section rates compared to many other hospitals, 18 and 22%. First, first find that out. If they're higher than that, then... Well, the ARRIVE trial wasn't a blind study, and that's why they were low. That's a red flag right there. Like, they were suspiciously low. It was like 18.6% versus 22%. It's like, this is a little low. This was done in the United States, and we have... So the answer to that is the fact that it was uh, not a blind study. And look at how well they got their C-section rates down just by being watched and knowing those C-sections were being counted. They all got them down low. Trisha and I, it's worth mentioning, did a deep dive on all of the research and all of the faults in the analysis of the uh, ARRIVE trial in a live stream webinar on our Patreon platform that anyone can go access. It's an hour long, and I would really say it's one of the most important things for any pregnant woman to to go watch and listen to because the rhetoric around the ARRIVE trial has been causing so much additional harm. They created conclusions around it that were never the things they were studying and they're ignoring all the limitations of that study. And there's just a lot to it. And we believe women should be prepared to go say to the doctor, do you actually know what happened in that trial? Because it's not what you're telling me. So tell, so take it from there. Tell us, tell us more about your experience there about being an expert witness and so I was practicing as a nurse for a little over four years, and I, I be, my philosophy is, is really understanding why we are doing what we are doing. And when I went to nursing school, that was really the overarching you know, uh, way that they taught us, and I'm very grateful about that because they said skills are great. Learning how to put in a catheter is great and all that, but you'll learn that on the job. But understanding the rationale understanding evidence-based practice, what it means to be a leader, what it means to try to implement change. That was really a lot of what I got out of nursing school. And so 
I practice that way as a labor and delivery nurse. And that's why I love learning and listening to podcasts and hearing the different perspectives of patients and learning new things. Um, again, what's one of the most overarching things that I've learned from this is that overuse of Pitocin and how many times it's caused harm to the fetus and not being shut off at the right time or decreased. Like it needs to really be watched um, when when a patient is getting this Pitocin. And I had a lawyer refer to it in a brilliant, brilliant way. He told me, he said, Pitocin is the narcotic of obstetrics, where you can use narcotics appropriately when need be, but they have to be used very judiciously. And they shouldn't be just thrown out to any patient that can just use Motrin or Tylenol. And how Pitocin in labor can have, can be a very valuable tool when needed, but it needs to be used carefully and appropriately. When you, when you said that, another thought came into my head that it's also a little bit the um, cocaine of obstetrics because it's like an addictive medication for providers. It's, it's like just another round of Pitocin, another round of Pitocin. We get so used to it. I hate to share things like this, but I just feel the need. Um, One nurse uh, involved in a magazine publication I used to um, work with a little bit and publish in a little bit. One nurse came forward and left her work and she said they had a, um, they had a phrase they used in the hospital in which the doctor would command the nurse uh, with the following words. He would say pit to distress. And she said it was our job to administer Pitocin and crank it to the point that we can call fetal distress and give a C-section. And I see you nodding. To tell- well, it's it's definitely something I've heard of. Um, in my case, I haven't experienced, I, I've heard of pit to distress. In my case, what I've experienced, what I, I've seen referred to is um, the the baby will prove itself, meaning to say, if we start pitocin, the baby will be in distress. And so, if a patient is just two centimeters dilated and needs to go to delivery, you know, you try the pitocin, the pitocin doesn't work, and then what? No, Isn't that well, the same thing? It's it's not because what you're saying, Cynthia, is is like a intentionally we're going to intentionally harm this baby. What she's saying is ex- it's totally manipulative because it's like. Oh, let's test this baby's reserves. Let's give an artificial external stimulation to see how tolerant this baby is when this baby was never designed and this mother was never designed to have that. It does sound like the exact same thing, the same intention. It's just cushioned differently. Like, oh, let's see if the baby can handle this. That's why it's manipulative. Stressful condition we're putting it under. And if it does, they probably crank it. Um, it's evil. That's pure evil. It's just like, I I can't believe that people can do that to other people. It's hard. What's hard is, is that sometimes there really is a medical indication to proceed to birth. Say a baby that has true and intrauterine growth restriction. I know that there can be subjectivity and I know that providers can throw that out more casually, but when there is, let's say, I'm just throwing out an example. When there's true, true, true intrauterine growth restriction, the baby has been measured and measurements have been followed for weeks, et cetera. And the placenta is clearly deteriorating. 
which means that the baby's going to have a harder time tolerating labor to begin with, right? Because the placenta is not growing as well. And so it's kind of the patient needs to proceed to birth because the baby is not growing. And then... Well, you could also argue that the the, the baby in that situation is going to have a much lower threshold for Pitocin. So yes, we need to get this baby born at some point, and we're trying to weigh the risks of the IUGR versus the induction of labor. But to push the baby and the body to the point of distress in that situation still seems unreasonable and unfair. Unethical. Yeah. And, and so for me, here's the thing. Here's what I've noticed over the years of my practice. I'll tell you a funny story. I'm the peanut bowl queen. Um, and for those of your listeners who don't know what a peanut bowl is, it's basically like looks like a giant like yoga ball, except it's shaped in a peanut. And we can use it to make to put the patient in different positions, both during um, labor with an epidural, without an epidural, et cetera. It can be a very useful tool. And I'm the peanut bowl queen. And I actually research and teach myself where, depending on where the baby is in the pelvis, what the best positions are. I'm very aggressive with it, with an epidural, et cetera. And so I've come to be known among some of the doctors as, oh, you know, just ask Hani. She'll, she'll make it work for you. And one time I came into the hospital and a doc, I was assigned to a patient that was having, they were having a hard time um, helping the patient progress in labor. I don't remember the exact situation, whether there was or was not Pitocin. And the doctor said to me, oh, I need you to work your magic on this patient. And I looked at the doctor and I said, it's not magic, it's bas- basic birth physiology. And she was like, oh, yeah, yeah. And, oh, I've and heard so of that, she said, oh, yeah, I've heard about that. It's, it's magic to her because she doesn't understand. Right. That. She has no idea it, what that is. Exactly. And and so that was kind of like a, a light bulb moment for me where doctors, I, I have a lot of respect for the doctors I work with. They they have an, they need to know an immense amount of things. They're not just doing labor and delivery. They're doing all kinds of obstetrics and gynecology and everything like that. And so I think practically speaking, realistically, it's impossible for them to concentrate on the nuances and little details of birth physiology when they when they have so much else going on, like, you know, I, I, I'll i see the doctor sitting next to me and they're getting calls for birth control refills, for testing for miscarriages, et cetera. But I think that midwives, especially those who are just in the birth arena, like this is literally their specialty. Like they know all of these details of the birth physiology. And as nurses, we should be the same because we're literally with patients during their labor. I think we should... We don't have enough training on the birth physiology at all. And I have nurses, my, my nurse colleagues always asking me, like, can you help me out? Can you like show me how to do this, this move and this, this? And I, I'm trying to get education in, into our hospital for the nurses. But I think any nurse that's a labor and delivery nurse, this is like should be, you know, 101 for them, even though unfortunately that doesn't happen. And I have medical students and residents, but more so the medical students, because they're really just, you know, they, they they come in, they're watching everything that's going on, that have told me, the medical students are like, wow, like, this is so interesting, all well, the things you told the patient about the three P's of labor and the birth physiology and the pelvic inlet and the outlet, and they're like, you should give a talk. <laughs> I've had med students tell me, I should give a talk to them about all of this stuff, because they don't learn this. That's what Barbara Harper spends her life doing, training doctors all around the world in water birthing. They all need to be trained. Because somewhere in those young minds of medical students and residents and new OBs, they have that, you know, they came in 
to that line of work because they must value birth to some extent. And so within them, there is that place where they, they know that the physiology of birth matters. It's just not taught. It's not even taught in nursing school very much. And it's the foundation of understanding birth. So when they hear you talk about it, they're like, oh, wait, I, that's right. There's something really important in that. And the irony yeah. of how busy they are is that their lives and their work would become so much simpler and they would be so much less involved if they did learn to be hands off and only intervene when they actually were, when that, when that risk to benefit ratio tips in the other direction. I cannot even tell you. I had the funnest time a few months ago when I had a normal physiological birth that was uninterrupted. And those patients are so few and far between. And every time it happens, I'm just like, my heart is just, you know, oh, exploding with joy. And the patient was pushing on all fours. And um, the resident was standing there and kind of saying like, this is weird. Like, I, I don't know where to put my hands. So I looked at her, I'm like, if only you, we can have every birth where you, you don't need to know how to put your hands. Like, it's great. In your, pockets. She's doing... In your pockets. Right. Right. I'm like, it's great. She's doing it. And then the patient's mom was there and she's like, oh, is it seat that she's pushing on all fours? Like, is that safe? And I'm sitting there like, just enjoy because I'm explaining it to the mom, but really I'm explaining it to the to the resident and the medical student that are there. And I'm like, no, actually, it's really great because her coccyx bone has more room to open up. And like, I'm explaining all the physiology. <laughs> and I, I was just enjoying it so much because I don't know if they've ever heard of that again. I have to tell you, I once was talking to a third year resident, third year, who didn't know what the training of a certified nurse midwife was. She said, oh, they have to be a nurse first. Oh, I thought it was like the kind of thing where like you just became a nurse or you became a midwife. I said, no. And when I went into the depth about the length of time that the training happens over, oh, oh, they have, I, I, I couldn't believe it. How, how can you not know this when you are expected to actually work closely with this profession? And, and she never learned it. Not in medical school, not in residency. They should have learned it because the statistics globally show that midwifery care is the safest form of care and it would benefit them to study it a little bit and say, well, what are midwives doing differently? And even if they value obstetrics more greatly, can we learn anything from this group of people who are resulting in better outcomes for women around the world? So given all your insights. What if you could make any change to the American hospital system, what change would you make? From a nursing perspective, from a labor and delivery nurse's perspective, really appropriate staffing, because I see so much how it burns out nurses. And nurses are the primary ones caring for patients in labor. We have the most face time with nurses in labor. And sometimes um, I will feel like I'm working with my hands tied behind my back because I know I can give a patient more support, but then I have a second and third patient that I also have to take care of. And it, the nursing staffing and treating nurses appropriately, I feel like really will transfer back into good patient care. I will say most nurses really truly want to give good patient care, but there are deficits in their training. There are problems with hospital culture. And also they, they really, it's easier for them to just get the patient in epidural than to sit there and help the patient, you know, into different positions and with comfort measures. One of the best things to say to a nurse 
or any of the healthcare providers is, is I know that this is something that's routine for you, but it's not something that's routine for me. And this is a very special and important event for me. And I ask that you take that into consideration with how you treat me. So the more you know, the better you'll be able to do that and be that active participant in decisions around your health and your birth. Thanks for joining us at the Down to Birth Show. You can reach us at Down to Birth Show on Instagram or email us at contact at downtobirthshow.com. All of Cynthia's classes and Trisha's breastfeeding services are held live, online, serving women and couples everywhere. Please remember this information is made available to you for educational and informational purposes only. It is in no way a substitute for medical advice. For our full disclaimer, visit downtobirthshow.com slash disclaimer. Thanks for tuning in. And as always, hear everyone and listen to yourself. She's the doula. Terry? With the South African or yeah, Australian she took, accent? She just, yeah, she just paid out of pocket to take my complete hypnobirthing course, if you can believe that. She's she was, incredible. And I said, I can't believe you paid out of pocket. And she's like, oh, this was worth every cent. It doesn't matter if they don't reimburse me. Like she's just such a beautiful person. So I had special affirmations Incredible. for her as a doula and I mailed them to her. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, small that's world. really great. Yes. <laughs>